Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So Quinta, will you be paying Elon Musk $1 a year for the privilege of, (laughs) I'm not even sure what, (laughs) using Twitter in a semi-functional way? I think it was tweets, retweets, likes, and bookmarks. So I will say I have not tweeted or retweeted anything in, let's see what my last, my last tweet was. Um, okay. Apart from promoting my own work, it looks like the last thing that I retweeted or tweeted was on October 8th. The problem for me with the Musk proposal is the loss of the bookmarking function because I do still use Twitter to follow news and I will like bookmark articles that I see there. And so if that is gone, then just pay him a dollar a year. Quint is not that big of a deal. Who would give this man their credit card information? That See, is th- my that's question. That's the thing. That, that's what I love about the dollar a year thing. Cause I, I get what Musk is trying to do. He's trying to be like, I dare you. I double dare you to not pay even a dollar for Twitter. But the problem is, is that this is requiring everyone to look deep down and to how much they dislike Elon Musk. And the answer appears to be, I'm not even willing to give him a dollar. And how much you trust him with your credit card information. Like that is the thing for me, right? You really want to hand this, this stuff over to this guy? Like, absolutely not. I do not tell, trust him not to sell this to a a data broker. People have with their Tesla cars. I mean, you know, that doesn't seem to be a problem. I feel like a lot of people have bought those. That waiting list is long. They got on there before things really went south on Twitter. I want to see how long that Tesla waiting list is now. Uh, That's the real question. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the studio with one of my other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And our third co-host in the virtual studio, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to be joined once again by one of our, uh, let's be honest, new favorite guests, Eric Charmella. Eric, thank you so much for coming to join us. Hey, great to be here. All the way along, track from right next door at the Carnegie uh, Endowment. We're happy to have you here. We are particularly happy to have you because we've had a very eventful couple weeks in the news. We have a couple of stories that we've been following for a while that have hit new critical phases. All very serious one very not funny or comical at all. One, like, let's be honest, a little comical uh, because it involves Jim Jordan, but that's okay. Um, and then we have another big news story that kind of caught us all unawares, which you're going to help us dissect a little bit happening in the country of Poland, a country that I don't think we've had opportunity to discuss recently, but has been uh, much in the news the last decade or so um, because it has been a part of this wave of uh, authoritarian uh, comeback in Europe, at least by some accounts, that may now be on the wane. So we're happy to have you here for what we are calling in honor of Mr. Jordan, the third ballots of the charm edition. Because uh, while we are recording, we will probably find out whether for him the second, for Republicans generally, the third ballot is in fact the charm on electing a new speaker. One it, of the top it will ones. not be. Does anyone think it's going to be? It does not seem great for him, but we'll see. <laughs> I will say I recorded a podcast yesterday that's probably not going to air for a few days. We referred to Jim Jordan and I suddenly realized I had no idea whether I should be calling him like speaker Representative Jordan. Jordan, Speaker Jordan. <laughs> like it's Co- I, Just go with Co- Coach Jordan, that, that always fits. <laughs> we're, all, we're all there. We're almost there. We'll see, guys. Uh, by the end of this episode, by the time this episode airs, who knows what we'll have to call this gentleman. But until then, let us dig into our three topics for the week. 
Topic one, peace off. Elections in Poland appear set to oust the incumbent Law and Justice or Peace Party, which has spent the last several years in power undermining many of the tenets of liberal democracy. That is, if the coalition of centrist and leftist groups that won a parliamentary majority can successfully form a government in the coming weeks, what might this tell us about the authoritarian drift in Europe and the extent to which it might be reversible? Topic two, Gaza under siege. Israel's military response to the massacre committed by Hamas is entering its second week as rockets continue to rain down on Gaza, which remains cut off to most utilities, supplies, and humanitarian aid. President Biden, meanwhile, is in Israel showing his support, but has had to cancel meetings with Jordanian officials due to outrage over what Gaza authorities initially claimed, inaccurately according to Israeli officials and most recently the Biden administration, was an Israeli attack on a hospital there that killed more than 500 people. What is the trajectory of this conflict? Where is it headed? And topic three, Air Jordan. Conservative House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan is the latest possible inheritor of the speakership of the House of Representatives. Having won the nomination of the Republican caucus shortly after Majority Leader Stephen Scalise went down in defeat on the floor. Steve Scalise. I don't know why I called him Stephen. I don't think he goes by Stephen. I think it's Steve Scalise. That's fine. (laughs) Mr. Stephen Scalise. Esteban Scalise. Esteban Scalise. But Jordan also failed to win enough support from his colleagues in a first vote on the floor earlier this week. And it's not clear he's looking any better for the second vote scheduled for today. What does the state of the house mean for the state of the country? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So Poland saw an election on October 15th that uh, was being closely watched, I think it's fair to say, uh, given the state of democratic backsliding in the country over the last few years. The Law and Justice Party, which has been in power for quite some time now, has really presided over a systematic weakening of democratic institutions in the country, um, such that I think it's kind of become a test case for sort of rising authoritarianism within the EU. And in at least for what for me was a a big shock, um, Law and Justice, um, so the the Polish acronym is PISPs, lost. It won a plurality of the vote, but it lacks the seats to hold on to power. Um, And it seems like there'll be a new ruling coalition led by Donald Tusk, who has a great name, so, Eric, I'm mostly just going to grill you <laughs> for for this segment. I want to get into what this means for Poland and for democratic reconsolidation, I guess, after deconsolidation. But to start off, were you expecting this? I was pretty shocked, but I'm not a close Poland observer. Was this something that people were thinking might actually be possible? Yeah. So, you know, the polls ahead of the uh, election were pretty neck and neck, and it was on a nice edge. You know, it was clear no party was going to get an absolute majority, but when you looked at the possible coalitions, you know, it all sort of came down to which parties would make it over the 5% threshold for a single party, 8% for a coalition. Um, And there's a, you know, very complicated system of seat allocation uh, in the Polish parliament where they have these multi-member constituencies that are weighted by population, but they haven't been updated in many years. And so it was very hard to predict how the seats would actually, you know, the seat allocation would come down. But so it was a possibility that uh, law and justice would be ousted from the government. But I think a lot of people were also realistic that, you know, many hopes, you know, for example, in Slovakia a couple of weeks ago that um, the former prime minister there, Robert Fico, uh, who has taken this sort of populist pro-Russian position, that he would be defeated in the election actually turned out um, not to be the case, and he won. So there was you know, a certain amount of realism going in. And 
I had seen Poland described as increasingly moving into the zone of what political scientists call competitive authoritarianism, meaning that there are elections, but they're not fair, and the party that wins tends to sort of rule with an iron fist. Was this election fair? And to what extent does the fairness or lack of fairness, you know, should should that shape our understanding of the ability, the sort of achievement that was pulled off by the opposition parties here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, many Polish commentators were touting it as the most important election since 1989, um, the first, you know, competitive elections after the fall of communism. And I would say that the election was, you know, we'll wait for the official assessments, but, you know, it was free, but not fair. Uh, the ruling party definitely used a lot of state resources to advantage itself. They'd taken a lot of steps to assert control over the media space in Poland, um, directing the Polish state oil refiner, for example, to buy up a number of local newspapers over the course of the past several years and using those as basically mouthpieces for the government. And so, you know, the opposition was at an extreme disadvantage going into this, which, you know, like you said, it, it makes their victory even more remarkable considering they really energized the youth vote. Um, it was pretty amazing looking at the uh, turnout. Um, the turnout for, you know, 18 to 27, I think, was their range, was higher than the turnout for 60 plus, um, which is, you know, pretty unusual, I would say, for elections. And uh, the youth vote obviously skewed heavily towards the opposition. So it was really kind of, you know, partly the return of of Donald Tusk, who had been the prime minister from 2007 to 2014, and then he was president of the European Council for five years. His return to Polish politics, where he was able to generate this kind of uh, enthusiasm uh, and hope for real change, plus some pretty deft maneuvering by, um, you know, the other opposition parties, this third way party that's going to be the coalition kingmaker, uh, had sort of been able to carve out a certain part of the electorate that wanted to protest you know, law and justice, the ruling party, but didn't necessarily want to vote for Tusk's party civic platform. But again, together, they'll be able to form this kind of pro-democratic new government. And hopefully, although, you know, we should talk about the details here, hopefully you'll be able to reverse some of the uh, steps that law and justice had taken to undermine Polish democracy. So I wanted to ask about those steps, because it seems like one of the biggest things that the law and justice party had done was to stack the courts with law and justice party supporters. I don't know how the Polish judicial system works, right? In the United States, it's very hard to reverse a stacking because, of course, our judges have life tenure at the federal system. I don't know if that's the case in Poland, but I would imagine that um, this new coalition is going to have a tough choice to make because on the one hand, it wants to clean house and remove from the judiciary some of these you know, law and justice apparatchiks, at least those who don't seem committed to rule of law. But of course, if it does that, it's going to create a lot of conflict and potentially open itself up to its own criticisms of just stacking the judiciary with its own partisans. So I'm sort of curious, A, if if this judicial issue is, you know, how important is it in the grand scheme of things of all of the democracy stuff that this coalition has to do? And two, if it is that important, how does the Law and Justice Party deal with it without causing its own democratic problems? Yeah, the civic platform. Yeah. So... It is extremely important, and it's going to be not easy to reverse for a lot of the reasons you just laid out. A lot of these judges are on for, you know, I believe it's, you know, life terms. And 
So pulling them back, I do think, will be difficult. And then if they try to change the law, there's always the possibility that the president, Andre Duda, will actually veto. And then, um, you know, the Polish parliament needs a three-fifths majority to override a veto, which the opposition coalition, soon-to-be governing coalition, won't have. So there's a certain amount of stickiness in some of the changes that law and justice introduced. You know, again, there are other ways potentially to go around it and kind of create commissions and, and qualifying uh, judges and so on and so forth to at least ensure that there's a there's a better system in place that is compliant with, you know, overall EU standards. Because, again, this whole rule of law crisis that started when law and justice came to power in 2015 has really strained Poland's relations with the rest of the European Union um, and has led the European Commission to suspend some funding to Poland and so on. So there are kind of different angles, some of which you know, the new government will be able to make progress on just by showing good faith. But, um, you know, as Alan was alluding to, you know, really kind of re-overhauling the judicial system after law and justice previously overhauled is likely to spark this kind of, you know, polarization and backlash that law and justice's original reforms did. So I kind of want to take a step back and think about what this might tell us or, or what, what a, where this might serve as a data point for like a theory or way to think about authoritarian drift in democracies, right? Because it's kind of this interesting – the competitive authoritarianism model, which we've seen Poland drift towards, you know, Hungary arguably drift towards um, and that there's a concern. Lots of countries drift towards maybe even the United States, right? Um, although I think it's not, not quite uh, there yet to say the least. You know, is this idea that we, we lose a lot of the – aspects that make things a liberal democracy in particular. But fundamentally, you still have some degree of competitive politics. Maybe it's not 100 percent fair. Maybe it's not 100 percent balanced. But that degree of competitiveness through an electoral process still provides a degree of public accountability, right? Or at least can. And so does that make the case for that being, you know, A, maybe a little bit of a source of hope uh, in some of these countries to say, look, as long as they're actually still having some competitive elections, uh, meaningful competitive elections, even if maybe not 100 percent fair, but meaningful, then there's an instrument for public change and accountability, even if it may not be as responsive uh, as we want on other fronts. And like, if that is the fire line, what, what does that tell us? Like, it's bad if you're a minority, right? Like, if you're an oppressed minority, like that's in the United States, like we have a very uh, kind of fixed constitutional concept of we have special protections for you know, insular minorities that can't exercise and have their rights recognized as easily through a populist democracy. But at least, you know, you have a mechanism for, again, change, accountability um, that can push back against retrenchment of too narrowly based authoritarianism model. And I think of this in the context of the Middle East where I've done the region I spent the most time on and where uh, I've worked personally to various extents on issues related to like Iraqi democracy, right? Like where Iraq has a very, very non-functional government in a lot of ways. Every Iraqi will tell you that. Even Iraqis in power will say, yeah, we're not – we are still figuring this out. But the one thing they do have is that they actually have competitive elections still. And while they've been delayed at times, nobody's been able to pull the move yet to say, nope, we're just getting rid of them or we're delaying them indefinitely as we've seen happen in places like the West Bank and other places where elections just haven't happened in 10 years, um, longer than 10 years now. So – like, is that like a good firewall? Like, is that actually, and this is for everyone, not just not just for Eric, like, or is that not enough? Or is it, you know, obviously, like, we're not limited to just one, but does this suggest that, like, maybe that is the 
bare line minimum to say before we really need to start panicking and saying a trajectory. And perhaps that's a point where if you're a country like the United States or other European countries where you see a neighbor and ally drift in this direction, that's really where you need to start drawing a line in the sand saying, hey, you drift past the point where you're having these competitive democracies, then we are going to have major relationship issues because you're drifting too far in the direction. Is that where it's worth exercising, you know, the incentives one state can prevent to another, or does it need to be above that for some reason? I mean, and competitive elections are definitely necessary um, for a democracy, but, you know, clearly not sufficient if you look at, um, you know, well, they're not particularly competitive in Russia, but obviously, you know, the Russians, the Syrians, you know, they still have elections just to, you know, reinforce the mandate. The competitive d- descriptor yeah. is important, certainly. Of, of Putin and Assad. So the, the sort of, yeah, um, just holding an election, a charade of an election, obviously, is not enough. But even in a place like Hungary, where, you know, I think the elections are still competitive, but the problem is that Orban's party has spent, uh, you know, a decade and a half chipping away at the constitutional foundations of democracy and really stacking the deck against anyone else taking power. Where, you know, again, the opposition, all parties united against him in the last election and still couldn't pull it off. And it was, again, a free election. It was competitive, but it wasn't fair because he had tilted the system so much in his favor. So I think it's important to actually think about kind of these pivotal elections where it's kind of a make or break moment. I would say our election in 2020 was the Brazilian election, you know, that defeated Bolsonaro and brought Lula to power was a pivotal election. And this one in Poland was because if you had law and justice get another majority, potentially in coalition with the extreme far-right party um, that did win some seats but really underperformed, you would have seen, you know, another four years of chipping away. And, you know, Kaczynski, the head of the party, had telegraphed his intentions long ago, which was we want to build a Budapest in Warsaw and we want to create this kind of firewall, you know, against liberal democracy, which we fundamentally don't believe in anymore. And so... This really was the the sort of make it or break it moment for Poland. And luckily, you know, Polish voters had the wisdom to demand a, a change in leadership. And hopefully, you know, the the opposition soon to be new government can at least reverse enough of it and and set the course going forward and build in some more firewalls uh, into institutions so that if law and justice does come back in four years, they're going to have a much harder time uh, degrading democracy. So, Eric, I have to say my first thought when I saw this news was, well, my first thought was that's great news for Poland. My second thought was this is potentially big news for Ukraine as well. Can you talk a little bit about what the sort of foreign policy regional implications are of this change in power, both within the EU and then in terms of support for Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, there's sort of two angles to this. Um, There's the Polish-Ukrainian dynamic and then the Polish-European dynamic. So first on the Polish-Ukrainian dynamic, you know, this outgoing government deserves a lot of criticism for what it's done to Polish democracy, but its policy on Ukraine actually has been pretty strong from the get-go. And, you know, Polish society uh, has been extremely generous in taking in more than a million Ukrainian refugees. A Polish you know, government support for Ukraine has been really kind of leading the pack from the get-go in terms of forcing the questions of, you know, certain provisions of, of weapons, tanks, fighter aircraft, so on and so forth. 
and really trying to move past the historical animosities that have existed between Poland and Ukraine for a variety of reasons over the years. So the government does deserve credit for that. Of course, it got politicized in the months before the election, in part because of this dispute over uh, Ukrainian grain transiting over land corridors uh, because of Russia's blockade of the Black Sea ports um, and transiting through Poland and then onward to export markets. And Polish farmers, who were a key constituency of the ruling party, were objecting because a lot of the Ukrainian grain actually was coming out into Polish markets and, you know, competing with, um, you know, Polish uh, export markets in Europe and so on and so forth. So there was a, a legitimate kind of conundrum there, but the government dealt with it in the least constructive possible way and really politicized the issue before the election. And then there was this really widely misinterpreted statement by Prime Minister Morawiecki about um, suspending military aid to Ukraine, which was quickly clarified to say, well, basically, we have nothing left to give at this point, which is, you know, probably close to a true statement since they really did empty out their coffers. So all that is to say you know, I think basically the new government will continue the policy of the old government just with the political rhetoric dialed down significantly, which is helpful. But really where you're going to see the big change is Poland's role in Europe because the outgoing government had such a bad relationship with Brussels and with Germany uh, in particular, making Poland a lot less influential in European policy uh, because it was just sort of you know, not a pariah, but no one really wanted to deal with it in Western Europe. So its ability to influence these EU debates and council meetings and so on was really limited. With Tusk potentially coming back as the prime minister, who's really, really widely, you know, well-regarded in Western Europe for his leadership on the European Council and just for, you know, again, this issue of bringing democracy back to Poland, the chances for, for Poland to play a leadership role in Europe, especially in the wake of the UK exit, um, from the EU is is much greater. And so, you know, there are some Polish commentators talking about how the power dynamics in the EU are now shifting eastward, where the Poles, it, historically, it's been kind of Franco-German discussions that have dominated what EU policy is. Now, Poland will be much more of a player. Again, you could look at it that way. You could also look at it in the sense that just Poland is going to be acting like a much more normal European country and able to contribute to these debates in a non- you know, overly partisan, politicized, and anti-EU kind of way. So from good news on the foreign stage to just increasingly terrible news, let's uh, talk about Gaza. So the war between Israel and Hamas continues now into its second week, despite general expectation of a ground assault on the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israel has up until this point not done so. It's still preparing for that and largely still just carrying out airstrikes. The civilian toll in Gaza continues to increase, in part because of uh, Israeli airstrikes, in part because of uh, what appears to be attempts by Hamas and Islamic Jihad to strike back. Um, we're recording this again on Wednesday morning, and so the information is still sketchy. But over the last few days, a lot of attention has been paid to an explosion at a hospital in Gaza that has killed at least hundreds of people. Increasingly, it appears, at least according to preliminary U.S. intelligence analysis, uh, that this was a result uh, not of an Israeli airstrike. Uh, but rather of rockets fired by uh, either Hamas or Islamic Jihad. Um, but either way, between the, the conflict itself and then as well as the uh, blockade that uh, Israel um, has imposed, the, the toll on Gazan civilians is increasing. It's hard to know, again, what the numbers are, but certainly in the thousands at least and almost certainly will 
increase over the coming days and weeks. Tensions in the region continue to increase. Um, there have been violent demonstrations in uh, multiple countries at this point in front of you know, Israeli and U.S. embassies in Lebanon, Turkey. President Biden, uh, in a quite dramatic display of solidarity with Israel, is currently in Israel right now, having come to show his support uh, for the Israelis, uh, but also presumably to, uh, at least in private, put some pressure on Israel to uh, allow more humanitarian assistance into Gaza. There are just so many ways that one could address this issue, but I'm going to start with you, Scott, and I'm going to ask this question. How much worse is the situation than you expected a week ago? Or is this about the cadence of escalation that you would have predicted? That's a really hard question. Uh, you know, I, I think the dynamics that we were worried about and that we talked about last week are very much in play. Um, you know, it was going to be we were worried about there being a very strong Israeli reaction that quickly is perceived by many, particularly in the region, but really in other parts of the world too, as potentially an overreach, um, particularly around its treatment of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and that that was going to trigger a political backlash and it's going to put the Biden administration, among others who had come out strongly in support of Israel and continue to strongly support Israel in a very difficult position because they have to balance these competing equities. I think that is 100% true and it has happened perhaps even faster than I expected Although I also think there are certain ways it's slowed down a little bit. As you mentioned, like right now we are still in this air campaign phase or this rocket campaign. Um, we've seen preparations for ground operation. We haven't really seen other than mobilization and kind of a preparation around the area around Gaza movement towards ground operation actually starting that I'm aware of. The reporting coming out of Israel is that Benny Gantz, has, who is part of the kind of wartime cabinet that's leading the military effort, um, as kind of a coalition, kind of cross-partisan effort, although it's not deeply cross-partisan, but somebody who's a kind of opposition figure to Netanyahu and has a lot of credibility in the defense space, worth noting, is a former general and, and very prominent Israeli on national security issues, you know, came in saying, we need an exit plan from Gaza before we start this, and I'm going to insist on it in the cabinet. And I kind of anticipate or expect, uh, we won't know for probably until historians start looking at this, but my, I suspect, I should say perhaps, um, that that is a reason why we haven't seen this operation come out yet because it's not clear how you go into Gaza, Gaza, what the victory conditions are, and then what the state is and you leave it out of it. Ben Whittas wrote a phenomenal piece for Lawfare on what that means ethically. Um, I think yesterday uh, it went up uh, that I strongly recommend folks reading because you know we really saw Israel very quickly within hours of this incident, really a day of this incident and this horrible massacre, um, people beginning to comprehend what exactly it was, start talking about very publicly a need to go into Gaza and pull Hamas off and talk of a ground operation and reoccupation. And that was a very, it seems like to me, instinctual reaction by Netanyahu and people in his cabinet, but not one that might have been well considered strategically. And, and it seems like maybe they're reevaluating that. I kind of suspect politically they're going to feel pretty locked in to do something on the ground in Gaza. I don't know what that looks like. Um, maybe it's less than a full reoccupation or a full uh, routing of Hamas. Um, but in the meantime, we're in this situation where we have this dramatic cutoff uh, of assistance, um, although that's beginning to weaken a little bit uh, under the urging of Europeans and the Biden administration. We see Rafah opening up to humanitarian assistance today uh, with Biden coming in with strong statements to Hamas saying if it is diverted, it will get cut off again. And there's nothing that is going to be on Hamas. But right now we're getting assistance in. The administration has been talking about a $100 million aid package to both West Bank and Gaza. So, you know, there is actually motion there in terms of getting Israel to relent a little bit on its strongest initial reaction and letting some assistance in. But 
fatalities are continuing to climb um, despite the, this Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital incident, which now does appear to be an Islamic jihad errant rocket, at least again, according to U.S. intelligence, although they've also said it's a preliminary assessment. Um, so that might yet change. But that's a pretty firm statement. The IDF, certainly that's been their position pretty much from the outset. You know, that I think triggered a lot of reactions. And the fact that it's has proven not to be Israelis is actually probably, I don't think, not going to tamp things down. I think it may tap things down on the official point. But in terms of popular outrage we're seeing in different parts of the Middle East, I don't think it's going to make a difference because it was a triggering event. But the un- fundamental underlying objection is still true, which is that a lot of Palestinian civilians have died, are dying, and are going to continue to die as long as Israel keeps up this rate of military operations. And it appears to be intent on keeping, and I should say, and the, the general embargo, and with the exception of that humanitarian assistance, some water being let in now, maybe some electricity and fuel, it, it, it looks like those conditions are going to stay for the foreseeable future, at least until a ground operation starts. And so those civilian casualties are going to continue to climb, and the inherent dynamic of the region getting angrier and angrier with Israel is going to continue. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I will say I have been very struck by what I think is a subtle but noticeable shift in the Biden administration's rhetoric on this um, in recent days. So after the initial Hamas attacks, the U.S. government came out with, I think, pretty unsurprisingly statements about, you know, we're this is paraphrasing. This is not the words that were actually used, but essentially, you know, we're behind Israel 100 percent. We support the Israeli government um, in responding to these terrible attacks. And in recent days, uh, and I know Biden gave a speech this morning, uh, which I, I confess I have not listened to, the administration has not leaned away from that necessarily, but has sort of alongside that rhetoric along about support for Israel has really been talking about the importance of mitigating civilian casualties and the importance of – ensuring that innocent people in Gaza um, are not hurt to the extent possible. That, I mean, Eric, Scott, I'm curious what you both make of that or if I'm reading too much into it, but it has really struck me um, in terms of what the U.S. government is signaling publicly um, and also makes me wonder about what's going on behind the scenes. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan went on television after there had been reporting about Israel cutting off water to Gaza um, and saying that the water in southern Gaza, at least where Israel had told civilians to evacuate to, was going to be turned back on. All of which suggests to me that the Biden administration is taking the risks of civilian casualties here very, very seriously, is potentially concerned about what the Israeli government is about to charge into um, and is, uh, at least in the case of the water, which there's been reporting from within Gaza that it may not have 
be actually reaching the people who need it, but at least is pushing uh, for some kind of harm mitigation measures, all of which I think is interesting uh, and maybe concerning about what it says about what Israel is is doing and planning. But I don't know, Eric Scott, I'm curious what you both make of that. So, Eric, actually, I want to hand it over to you. I have thoughts on this, but you've worked in the White House and the National Security Council, not necessarily on this region, at least that I'm aware of, but um, in other sort of crisis situations. I'd be curious how would you make of how the Biden administration has approached this kind of process-wise, particularly when you're talking – its role it's playing where it is weighing in on these intelligence assessments regarding the uh, Al-Ahli Baptist hospital uh, explosion and other elements. I mean, how does it appear to be tacking, triangulating this? How does it relate to your prior experience? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this administration um, really kind of tries to be careful, particularly in a crisis. And, you know, while there was the obvious initial sort of uh, unwavering support for Israel that you would expect— I do think that the concerns about, you know, civilian casualties and and whatnot have mounted. And so, you know, Sullivan and the president have tried to find this course that, you know, reaffirms Israel's right to self-defense while still, you know, showing that we care about what happens to the people of Gaza and, you know, trying to put, let's say, the the more kind of specific disagreements behind closed doors and avoid any kind of inflammatory rhetoric some of which you've seen in in certain European capitals, sort of this bigger pendulum swinging between initial support for Israel to then, you know, some pretty strong condemnation of Israeli actions, um, which again makes kind of the European diplomatic kind of discussion a little bit less credible, I think, in the region because they're just going from one extreme to the other. You know, whereas the White House has sort of maintained this credibility with the Israelis and is trying to use that to really shift them off of kind of maximalist military objective. So, again, that is all to say that I do think there's a lot of care and analysis that's going into this. When it comes to the particular, you know, the hospital strike or explosion, uh, again, whatever it was that actually happened there, you know, a lot of people rush to conclusions on social media, which is inevitable. But based on my experience, you know, I was at, I was at the CIA when uh, the Malaysian airliner MH17 was shot down in eastern Ukraine in 2014, and there was a mad scramble to come up with an intelligence assessment so that we could confidently go out and explain to the world why, you know, what had happened in this tragedy. And the Obama White House at the time, you know, basically said to the agency, you've got essentially 24 hours to put together the pieces as best you can. And they, you know, we used all different kinds of intelligence information to come up with this assessment, um, which turned out to be, you know, vindicated over time when more information came in. And there was the whole Dutch prosecution uh, that landed on the assessment that, you know, it was a Russian anti-aircraft system that that had shot down the plane. But again, it was it was a mad scramble, but there was still, you know, a solid analytic process behind it. And based on what the NSC has put out today that, you know, they cited overhead imagery and intercepts and open source information, that to me sounds like a similar process went on behind the scenes here where, you know, the agency and the other partners in the IC, you know, sat down and looked at all the information that they had available to them and came up with this preliminary assessment, you know, and I think that's kind of the only responsible way to go. And it's it's sort of, it's unfortunate that, you know, we had some media outlets who kind of jumped to, you know, one conclusion or the other. And once you set a narrative out there, it is very hard to 
sort of course correct when um, tensions are so high in the region. Uh, and so I guess, you know, again, kudos to the White House for going through this rigorous process and doing the best to kind of, you know, put the facts out there. And presumably that was necessary to make sure that Biden wasn't getting on a plane to go to Israel and then have to say, by the way, the Israelis just bombed a hospital. Yeah. But again, the timing of it suggests that that in, that assessment was ongoing as he was flying over and it, they, he may not have had complete information. He may have had a preliminary, preliminary take when he was walking into the room with Netanyahu, which is it's tough. It's tough to put an American president in that position. But this is moving so quickly that it's basically inevitable at this point. So, again, the IC did what it could. And, you know, I guess we'll, you know, we'll see how further investigations come out over, over the next few days. I think one of the challenges is going to be that, you know, in, in other cases, you had um, foreign media that was able to access, you know, for example, the MH17 crash site and so on, even though the Russians did a lot to block access at that time. But there was, you know, there were non-government assessments that were able to be done that were seen as credible and bolstered the initial U.S. government assessment. In this case, I'm not sure that there's going to be that opportunity. And time is of the essence because evidence can be moved around and things can be made to look like something different than what actually happened. And so I think it's going to ultimately, on the grand scale, still be kind of a muddy picture, even if like this initial assessment, you know, if, if further evidence sort of backs it going forward. And just to, to put a fine point on this, because we are going to see people, I think we've already started seeing people saying, this is just the Biden administration backing Israel. Don't take, treat this credibly. Yeah. Um, this is politically convenient conclusion for them to reach. Yeah. Um, but in your experience, these are this is a sort of factual assertion. An administration, the Biden administration, would be resistant to making without having a credible basis for actually believing it's accurate. Is that right? I mean, listen, the intelligence community has done a lot of things in the past that I very much disagree with, and it did allow intelligence to be politicized you know, in the run-up to the Iraq war, for example, and that dented its credibility for a long time. There were a lot of reforms put in place after uh, the Iraq war to try and uh, resist politicization in the intelligence process. It's far from perfect. We saw the Trump administration politicize intelligence, for example, the strike against Qasem Soleimani and their sort of, you know, purported imminent threat sort of explanation and justification post hoc, um, you know, was was clearly an effort to kind of skew intelligence. Um, so it's not perfect. A, a White House can interfere uh, with the sort of intelligence analytic process. But in this case, I, you know, I see no evidence that this administration is looking to do that. And, you know, I would point to another example where you had, you know, missile debris land in Poland last year and immediately you know, the Ukrainian leadership blamed a Russian missile. And President Biden, who was traveling overseas at that time, was very cautious. And lo and behold, a day or two later, it became clearer that this was debris from Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile, you know, that had been trying to intercept a Russian missile again. So ultimately, the Russians were responsible, but this was Ukrainian debris. So it wasn't that the Russians had just attacked a NATO ally. And the administration went to such great lengths to make sure that it really understood the factual case, because, again, if the Russians had launched an attack into, you know, territory that's protected by Article 5, our response is obviously going to be way different than if this was really just a tragic accident. Um, and so I see that kind of same, you know, fact-based, evidence-based uh, process playing out here. So obviously there's a lot more to talk about 
here and we're going to no doubt keep talking about this for many, many weeks. But before we close out this conversation, I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the regional implications. Right now, this is a war between Israel and Hamas. But of course, they are not the only relevant actors in the region. You have Hezbollah in Lebanon. You have Iran, of course, which is like the big looming unknown here. How close are we to a regional conflagration? And what, if anything, can Israel, and I suspect more relevantly here, the United States do to prevent this turning into the next big war in the Middle East? It's a good question. You know, we've seen the Biden administration walk a really careful line, and they've got an interesting kind of toolkit in Israel that's very different from what we've seen prior administrations do. Um, Joe Biden has a, a fair amount of credibility because he has been a Israel ally in Congress for many decades on a lot of fronts, uh, not unqualified always, but still generally an Israeli ally from years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's got a relationship with Netanyahu and other officials. And his administration has taken a very different tack than the Obama administration did in that the Obama administration was willing to openly criticize and take issue with what Israel has done in various contexts to try and put pressure on them publicly to the point that even allowed Security Council resolutions to get through critical of Israel that had traditionally been vetoed by the United States. Biden administration, very different tack. Uh, Biden administration, I have no doubt, has a lot of the same policy concerns the Obama administration had, but their tack has been to keep those conversations behind closed doors and to stay on the front lines. And, we, and we've actually seen, I think, a dividend and a, a paid of that that's helped the Biden administration in this situation. Israeli public approval numbers of Biden are way higher than of Netanyahu and other officials currently in the government in Israel. I think that's a source of strength for uh, Biden uh, in being able to persuade them. I think what happened with the Obama dynamic is that as as the Obama became adversarial, public opinion in Israel dropped and it became advantageous to buck the American response, um, particularly towards the end of the administration when an election was looming. And I don't think that's the case with Biden right now. And that gives him a little bit of leverage he can use to shape the dynamics of this conflict. On the flip side, though, it's still a very difficult line to walk in terms of reactions in the region. We saw the Jordanians cancel a bilateral um, that had been scheduled with President Biden uh, over the hospital bombing. Uh, maybe that will be back on now because of this change in attribution. Maybe not. I kind of doubt it. But maybe they'll have a phone call or some other kind of proxy or substitute. But all this enters into this bigger dynamic, which is you have a security, a soft security assurance to Israel that you will you will do something to back them up. We have two carrier groups, if I recall correctly, now in or headed to the Eastern Med to back that up potentially with military capabilities. And that is all about trying to deter regional conflict. And so it's a two-front deterrent effort. One front is to try and get Israel to engage its Gaza operation in a way that does not trigger off a regional conflict by enraging people around the region. Um, and that has been a big focus of the efforts thus far. And I think the reset you've had humanitarian assistance get in will help and, and other things will help, but probably not going to be able to alleviate the situation in even the medium term because civilian casualties are going to keep climbing as long as they keep this operational tempo up. Uh, and certainly if they start a ground operation. And then the flip side is you have to deter Hezbollah primarily and through them potentially Iran because you have Hezbollah threatening northern Israel saying we will launch military operation potentially if you start a ground operation in Gaza. That's part of the calculus for Israel as well. You know, And how far will the United States go in deterring that? Will they launch targets on Hezbollah? 
I kind of suspect they will uh, quite openly. I think that the carrier groups will there are to be taken seriously, um, particularly because Hezbollah has a lot of capabilities where they could trigger a lot of Israeli casualties pretty seriously, uh, threaten that if they were to go on an all-out offensive. Um, and so this deterrence game, I think, is actually really important. Um, that raises legal questions, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't doubt the Biden administration thinks the president has the authority to do that without Congress, if I'm being honest. I may not agree with that, but I, I don't think they do because the risk of a major escalation to a major conflict with Hezbollah is pretty limited for the United States if it doesn't want to engage in one. And then the question is other fronts. You know, what about Syria and uh, Iran-backed militias there? I fully We've had a, sh- a shadow war between Israel and Iran and Syria for the last several years. I have no doubt that's going to hype up a little bit. Maybe you'll see, you know, a stronger pushback against Iran-backed militias in Iraq, although I kind of doubt it because Iraq is too delicate anyway and nobody's going to want to like risk uh, triggering another series of crises there. Um, so I think those are really the fronts we're worried about. Jordan, Egypt, you know, Turkey, none of these countries are actually going to engage in a meaningful way against Israel. It's not going to be a state-to-state conflict. I think it's a Hezbollah-Hamas and then through, through them Iran-proxy conflict that we're worried about. And the secret is just to try and get Iran and the agents through which Iran is operating deterred enough by a threat of Israeli military action and potential U.S. military involvement. So far, I think they're striking the right balance, but we don't know. And the real question will be when the ground operation starts, how does Hezbollah react? And that's, that's the trick. Well, from one, from one ongoing crisis to another ongoing crisis, let us turn our eyes back to the home front. But, but this one's funny. This one is a little funny. <laughs> Still <laughs> devastating funny and, and really and problematic sad. and really sad, but a little bit funny at least. Um, we are now in week two without a Speaker of the House. Uh, we saw Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise make an effort, win the initial Republican nomination earlier this week, late last week actually, excuse me bring a vote to a floor, failed to get the 217 votes uh, necessary to become speaker, did not pursue any additional votes, came back and the caucus quickly nominated Representative Jim Jordan, a very controversial ally of former President Trump, someone who is widely believed to have been involved in efforts to upset the results of the 2020 election, um, openly accused of doing so by, among others, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, among many others. And uh, was the nominee, is currently the nominee for speaker, um, failed on a second ballot or a first ballot for him, second ballot for Republicans earlier this week. As we're recording, appears to be on track to lose a second ballot. Uh, It looks like he's got 15 no's by the current count because it looks like one person voted no, then switched back to Jordan uh, (laughs) that I'm tracking on uh, X. So, But nonetheless, that is not enough votes. So if those no's hold, then he will lose this round and maybe they'll do another vote today. Maybe they'll move on to another candidate. We'll have to wait and see where the process goes from here. Obviously, this is a kind of ridiculous drama. Um, You know, Representative Jordan is somebody who's widely seen as problematic. I think we've raised concerns about uh, a lot of his activities here on the podcast in the past uh, before. Um, And uh, certainly the strong reaction you're seeing from Republican moderates or the moderate wing of the Republican Party and also some members of the Freedom Caucus like Representative Ken Buck, who has come out as one of the more vocal and articulate and firm anti-Jordan members of the House, at least so far, really suggests that this crisis doesn't have a clear endpoint, at least in terms of a permanent speaker, anytime soon, uh, unless people the resistance to Jordan really collapses or some other consensus candidate emerges. So, Quinta, let me start with you uh, as somebody who is one of our Congress watchers among us. Where do we think this heads and, like, what are the possible outcomes, right? Like, where are the breaking points? We've got three weeks, four weeks till the government, next government shutdown threat on November 17th or 18th, if I recall. 
And so that's obviously in an event we've got NDAAs and appropriations bills that need to be approved by the end of the year before this Congress leaves. So, you know, where do we see this? What What's going to break this dam eventually? And what does it all mean for legislation towards the end of the year? Yeah, um, what you can't see, listeners, is that I'm d- attempting to become the human embodiment of the the shruggy emoji. I don't think anyone knows what's happening. Um, our uh, wonderful colleague, Molly Reynolds, I think every time I've passed her in the hallway or virtually on Slack, I've asked her what she thinks is going to happen. And as far as I can tell, she's just having people shout that at her from the sidewalk. Um, Molly, what's going on? Um, and if if Molly doesn't know, then ladies and gentlemen, nobody knows. And I certainly don't know. Um, I will give a shout out to uh, Representative Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, who apparently uh, voted for John Boehner <laughs> instead of Jim Jordan. Uh, that's excellent. I support this. I think that setting aside a sort of analysis of the institutional dysfunction of the Republican Party for a minute, it strikes me that the likelihood of a semi-permanent speaker pro tempore, if such a thing can exist, Patrick McHenry seems to be increasingly likely. Um, Molly has talked about a number of different options for what that would look like, including in a podcast with you, Scott, like he could just sort of continue in his current role without being elected formally as speaker and that he likely has a fair amount of flexibility in how much power he can exercise in that role. It seems like there are Democrats who are now talking about electing McHenry as formally as speaker as a kind of more moderate compromise candidate. I would have said, you know, a couple of weeks ago that that's fantasy West Wing stuff, but we appear to live in that world now, although it's definitely much more veep than than West Wing. So I have no idea, <laughs> basically. Um, and I think, you know, this is in some ways the apotheosis of where we've been headed since Boehner threw up his hands in disgust in, what, 2014, 2015, and, and just bailed on the, the whole damn thing. To go smoke some cigars, and, <laughs> among other things, and lobby for the marijuana Mow, industry. Mowing his lawn just yeah. happily, yeah, in life. retirement. Truly, truly. To like cure, cure his skin. Yeah, a little too tan, if we're being honest, but that's okay. Uh, we, all, we, all, we, all, we can say it now. Um, I think that's right. One option Molly floated in that podcast, uh, and I've seen chattered otherwise. I think the Washington Post op, uh, editorial board wrote about it today, I think, or maybe yesterday, uh, is the idea that you could have an elected speaker pro tem. Um, where it is somebody for a limited term elected with limited authority um, that is provided by uh, – that's an option provided by um, uh, the rules generally and the specific rule that – under which the current speaker pro temp operates. The logic would be current speaker pro temp's authority is a little bit in question and there's reason to interpret it very narrowly as saying basically he's only supposed to oversee the process for electing a new speaker and that's how McHenry seems to more or less be interpreting with a couple of like odd exceptions. But that it also provides for the election of a speaker pro temp, so somebody for a limited purpose slash limited time period. And so you could maybe get a bipartisan coalition to willing to do that if you can't break the Republican gridlock to at least keep the government open and enact a couple key priority legislation by the end of the year and then go back to this big mess, I guess, in January or whenever whenever you get those, those job – those items wrapped up. So among the items that we're worried about is Ukraine assistance. So, Eric, let me turn over to you because I know you've been tracking this closely. You know, 
what is, I guess, the substance of the ask? Like, how is it, you know, I think latest we've seen is a proposed kind of omnibus Ukraine, Israel assistance, some Palestinian slash regional assistance generally, and then Taiwan got thrown in there um, at the end of the year. And the border. And the border. And the border, of course. That's literally the the essential part of the formula. Yes, uh, exactly. And that is now the the gestalt, you know, uh, Voltron model of legislation um, that we're thinking about. Do you have a sense of where the political dynamics are so far? And and particularly, how is this impacting the people on the policy side and in Ukraine? Like, how are they viewing this? And how is this impacting the conduct of the conflict there and other variables that hinge on this assistance? Well, you know, the Ukrainians are obviously very worried that our political dysfunction is going to harm, you know, their existential fight for their country. We did sort of, in other news, secretly give them some long-range weapons that they used for the first time yesterday to hit, you know, Russian depot and some helicopters well beyond behind the front line. So they have some kind of uh, morale boosts, but still this is really disheartening and demotivating for them to watch our dysfunction here and really have no idea where things are going. You mentioned the omnibus package. I saw latest, you know, it might be sort of this $100 billion Um, put everything together and sort of take these issues off the political agenda between now and the election, presidential election next year. You know, I have no idea. I'm shrugging, too, about whether that's doable. I saw some comments from Mitch McConnell yesterday that suggested he thought it was doable in the Senate. But again, the Senate was never really going to be an issue. So, you know, if, if Jordan really can't get the votes and we move to the McHenry scenario or somebody else emerges who's a sort of more mainstream Republican, I do think you could probably get a vote on this and there'd probably be a majority supporting it. But, you know, we'll see. Some There's going to be some voices that really demand separating and having, you know, votes on each individual thing because there's so much, you know, there's there's this really vocal minority of Republican members that are so opposed to Ukraine aid. And so they might try and tank the whole thing if they can. I mean, it's just—it's all just so insane. <laughs> I just—I—I I, I wish I had anything intelligent to say about this, except, you know, it's like it's like the, it's like the whole Dems in disarray thing, right? It's just amazing that this party cannot govern itself. Yeah, the the Dems and are in array, and the Republicans the are in are disarray. Very, very much in array. I, I, <laughs> I don't even know what analysis there can be. Like, you have one of the major parties cannot govern itself. It refuses to work with the Democrats. And it is in control of one house of Congress. And unfortunately, we're not in a parliamentary system, so we can't just have a snap election. <laughs> yeah. That's about right. <laughs> yep. I, I just I, I don't know what like the next like and so what? It's just it's just ludicrous. So maybe it's worth talking a little bit about how, by my understanding, a kind of coalition effort could or couldn't work, a temporary one or a permanent one, but a temporary one being a little more likely by bipartisan solution, I mean. Because my understanding, although you guys correct me if I'm wrong from talking to Molly and others, is that the big challenge here is that even if you get a bipartisan support majority to support a speaker candidate, that doesn't necessarily translate to be able to have confidence that you have the bipartisan majority for actually doing all the procedural votes you have to get to get to legislation. And then there's the added issue of the Rules Committee, which isn't totally reflective of the broader body of the House. And the the question there I have is I wonder if the the limited purpose, you know, Speaker Pro Temp can help eliminate that a little bit. If there's general consensus around here are the bills we're debating 
and we establish some ground rules for things like amendments and other you know procedural steps that can be adopted. I mean, the House has a lot of flexibility. I guess you'd have to get rules to sign off on that. But if you could get rules to sign off, particularly on a rule that limits amendments or only accepts certain amendments that you know keeps out the most controversial ones for both sides, you know, it seems like a limited purpose speaker pro temp could be in, in the offing. Given that Democrats seemed very much willing to operate and coordinate on this, like they've got a solid block, so you only need. 10 to 12 Republicans. But I've thought that this whole time, uh, that you could do something like this because Republicans, I mean, the Democrats' legislative agenda, very low bar. They have no expectation of getting anything through, and that's fine, right? Like all they should really aspire to do is keep the government open and advance certain key bipartisan foreign policy objectives. If they did that, that's a huge win for Democrats. It's such a low Um, bar. It's such a low bar. But when you lose the House, that's just the way it is these days, you know? And it seems like you could get enough Republicans on board for doing that. But it's just the politics are so challenging to to wrench even that small number. I think they would need, what, 10 Republicans. To wrench even that small number just seems like an impossible political task. Who are all going to get primaried if they do this. I mean, they essentially have to leave the party. Yeah. No, and that's exactly the issue, right? I mean, you know, one of the things that Jim Jordan has tried to do in the last few days, and it appears to have backfired spectacularly on him, was to get his buddies in right-wing media, especially Sean Hannity, to start emailing, emailing other Republicans who are not voting for him to ask, why is it that, you know, while the world burns you're, and we have an immigration crisis, you're not supporting Jim Jordan for, you know, America, um, you know, please give us a comment in the next 10 minutes or something. And this just obviously transparent attempt to gin up the Republican base. Now, I am heartened that this has backfired and that's you know, some Republicans have shown some real spine here. But it nevertheless remains true that there's a big difference between not voting for Jim Jordan, right, and essentially voting for Hakeem Jeffries, which is how every single of these Republicans are going to be described in conservative media if they do anything. And so, you know, I I think, Scott, you're right. It's not that there's some structural impediment within the House itself to this. The House can do whatever it wants. It's that every vote is a potential defection of one of these 15, 20, 25 House Republicans, right, who are stuck in, you know, in a very difficult place because, you know, a lot of them are in districts that Biden won in 2020, right? So they're very competitive. The Democrats are not going to give them a pass in the next election just because they, you know, voted with Hakeem Jeffries this one time, especially given that the Democrats could very plausibly pick up the House in 2024. They're going to get primated by the Republicans. And so, you know, you have this crazy situation in which it's actually in it's more in any individual Republicans self-interest to simply let the House continue to not function than to vote with Democrats. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible for the country, but tremendous content. I think that is right. But I think there is a point where even those members have to worry that becomes not true for the same reason that when you have a shutdown, eventually, frankly, usually Republicans cave who are driving the shutdown. Because the costs get too high, things pile up, and people eventually people are saying, ooh, wait, my voters actually do care about the government functioning, and I am taking some heat for this. And I, I do think that's where you get the breaking point. The question I have is, the next kind of big question is, does it happen before or after the shutdown? Mm-hmm. And I think it might happen after the shutdown. I think you might actually need to get that actual pain. And that's a lousy time to have a shutdown over Thanksgiving as the holidays coming in. But I think it might be what we're looking at. This is so obvious, but it feels like it's worth saying. As with, you know, aid to Ukraine, keeping the government open, it's not like 
a fun game, right? Like it has actual yeah. consequences. Yeah. It's just the bare minimum of governance. Do you think this sort of makes uh, more likely those – there have been some bipartisan proposals, I think mostly in the Senate, about you know how to avoid these government shutdowns in the future and – kind of change the funding model such that the assumption is that it stays open and is funded at previous levels or whatever. Does it make it more likely? I mean, in a sane world. Yeah. Yeah. I think in a perfect world, yeah, totally. Um, But the thing is, like, actually the politics don't really play out even for Democrats on that. I mean, Democrats could have done that when they controlled the House and the Senate this last Congress, and they didn't. I think part of that is because Republicans keep getting stuck and shooting themselves in the foot and actually is – giving the Republicans enough rope to hang themselves, like, is actually a political part of the calculus here. I I wish it – I kind of wish it weren't, although I totally get it, honestly. Um, And I, you know, I don't know. Maybe that will change if it really proves to be a hindrance in such an international crisis moment. But it wasn't enough last time. And we all kind of saw this coming. This isn't a surprise. We knew this was going to happen as soon as we knew Republicans were likely to retake the House. So who knows? Well, folks – that brings us to the end of our time here today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So it has been obviously a rough couple of weeks, and one way that I'm dealing with that is just by watching a lot more television. Uh, and so the latest thing that I'm watching and really quite enjoying uh, is a uh, British uh, series from 2022 called um, A Spy Among Friends. Uh, it's based on the true story of Kim Philby, a very high-placed British intelligence officer who defected to the Soviet Union in the 1960s, uh, having secretly been an agent for the Soviet Union for 20 years. And what's nice about uh, this, it's not the usual story where you find out over the course of the series that Kim Philby is a double agent. That's what the story opens with. And then the story is about the um, fallout of that within MI6 itself. Really good stuff, a really interesting take on the, 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 the spy genre and you know, allows me not to think about the real world for an hour, which I am extremely grateful for. Quinto, what do you have for us today? I would like to recommend a book. Uh, I listened to it in audiobook form, but I imagine it would also be enjoyable read. Uh, it is called. You don't know that. <laughs> it's called. You don't uh, know what your internal voice would be like for that book. <laughs> I guess. I guess not. Um, it's called Number Goes Up. Um, it is by uh, Zeke Fox, who is a reporter who has been covering cryptocurrency and is sort of I picked it up because uh, it was listed alongside Michael Lewis's very weird sounding book about uh, the collapse of FTX as a sort of more skeptical take on cryptocurrencies and Web3. Um, and so I have been enjoying it on audiobook. Um, it is definitely a rollicking ride. I think it's if you are looking for a serious overview of the pros and cons of this kind of thing, I do not think it is for you. And I actually kind of wish it was a little less glib and a little more detailed in describing that ecosystem at points. But it is very entertaining as just kind of a wild ride through all of the grifters and shady characters and weirdos who somehow managed to convince people to give them just like unfathomable amounts of money and how the ecosystem in some ways has kind of collapsed and in some ways mysteriously continues onward uh, for reasons that even as I am close to finishing the book kind of remain beyond my comprehension. Uh, So recommended if you're looking for something sort of uh, light and entertaining and rollicking to listen to as you do the dishes or something like that. 
Excellent, excellent recommendation. Well, for my object lesson, I am going back in the television pool um, where I have I have been uh, also alleviating stress uh, through doing in the evenings. And I've been watching a show that was very stressful in its first season, but its second season is such a tone change in a very interesting, uh, welcome way. I think it warrants mention. Uh, and that's The Bear. Got a lot of critical success for being a very intense show that captures the intensity of working in a restaurant in its first season. It was that. It was one of those shows that was great, and I really enjoyed it, um, particularly if you're like a food or a cooking nerd. And so like it has lots of food porn about like you know close-ups of carefully slicing oranges and things like that. It's like the opening credits for Dexter every episode. But it's great, but it was very stressful and intense. The second season has turned into this like absolute love fest where it's all about a great it turns it into a real collaborative character drama where like lots of different characters, not just the main character, Carmi, like get whole episodes committed to themselves about their personal development and they get a lot of narrative. It's actually great acting. Like all these actors they cast for relatively small parts for the first season actually are pretty good, it turns out, and can carry like a pretty central dramatic role throughout this season later. Um, Really, really incredible performances from a number of folks in the show. I think it's great. And it's like the season that I walked away from, even though I had some tense moments and tension and like ends on a cliffhanger as these things always do, like – it gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling because it was just so much about these characters really doing something they were excited about and overcoming challenges together and collaborating and coming to respect themselves and each other. And that's just a greatly, you know, affirming thing to see on TV um, that you don't see enough of because most TV is depressing and sad. And I did not find this this way, you know, ends on some sad notes because you have to set up the third season. But I really enjoyed it. I think it's great. And so if you didn't like the first season of the Bear because you thought it was too intense, I would check out the second season still. It's good TV. It's really well done. Phenomenal set of guest stars doing great stuff throughout the season. And it's phenomenal. So highly recommend it. Eric, bring us home. What do you got for us? All right. So my object lesson is a podcast. Um, It is a music podcast called Strong Songs by a musician named Kirk Hamilton. And it basically is a very wonky podcast that deconstructs many famous songs and goes through a lot of details about instrumentation choices and chord progressions and voicing and all of this kind of detailed musical theory that I particularly love because last year I joined a band and it's been a really fun experience, but uh, I play the keyboard, um, you know, and the piano. And so I always played by myself and never with a band. And this has given me such an appreciation for the way that bands get their unique sounds and how it all comes together, um, you know, both in the playing and, and composition, but also in the mix Uh, So I have really enjoyed that, and it has allowed me to unplug from the news of the world. Uh, Amazing. What what type of music are you playing in your band? Is it like a rock band or like a jazz band? Yeah, sure. It's like rock country Americana type stuff. Oh, I'm excited. I'm really excited to check this out. That's always been my dream to be in a band. I would first have to learn how to play (laughs) music. You could play the tambourine or something. I love the idea. I played the clarinet in middle school. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. I I played a mean recorder from first (laughs) through fourth grade. Well, folks, that... Brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on X at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. For an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits, visit lawfaremedia.org support for more details on that. 
Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Eric Charmella, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.